Well, this morning um, and over the next few weeks, we're uh, in the time of Advent, and we're going to be looking at five different women who appear in the family tree of Jesus. Let me pause for a second and say, kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. They probably already have gone. I forgot to say that. But we're going to be looking uh, this morning, as I said, um, at... um, uh, different women who appear in the family tree of Jesus and seeing how God uses those who we might think seem out of place in such a wondrous event as the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you need to use a pew Bible, there's a couple of pew Bibles there per row. That's page 757. Matthew chapter 1 That's what we'll be looking at together This morning, we think about this time of Advent, we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we remember that uh, He did not uh, just simply descend on Good Friday, and that He was placed upon a cross that Friday and then rose uh, three days later. We must remember that He came to uh, this world, Uh, we just sang about this, God dwelling with us, uh, the uh, Son of God, uh, eternally co-equal with God, um, comes and puts on flesh, puts on humanity. And that takes um, a lineage. It takes families throughout the centuries so that he might come into the world. We're going to be looking a bit at that in this idea of the family tree of Jesus, specifically looking, as I said, at five uh, women over the next three weeks. And so we begin this journey together this morning, not forgetting, of course, the purpose of it. As with all of our time in the Word of God, we are um, on a trajectory toward looking at and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as beautiful and as Savior and as Lord. If you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 1 as you follow along in the Scriptures I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew, uh, the apostle, writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. That is the word of God. You may be seated. I pray that it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud both, um, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament reading this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, it is with a great desire for those of us who are in Christ this morning that we would learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as we study these things together. So we are confident, Lord, that your Holy Spirit who indwells us who also inspired these words in the original autographs and is now able to illuminate our eyes and our minds to an understanding and, Lord, also an application of these truths to our lives, not only today, but in the days to come. 
Lord, help us to see these truths as much more than just some sort of Christmas story. These are real events. These are, Lord, your decree for how you would bring about uh, reconciliation of sinful man to yourself and bring glory to yourself. So help us to see these truths in that way this morning, we pray. Pray that you would get me out of the way and continue to humble me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know that we should never make grace a reason for sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. But we should be surprised when God in His grace uses sinners just like us. Uh, we recognize, and we even, again, sang about this this morning, uh, the unsavable being saved um, and uh, the unlovable being loved. We should be surprised when God in His grace uses sinners just like us. <clears throat> Recently, one of the most famous musicians of the last two decades professed faith in Christ. And having seen many famous people profess faith, and then not live that faith out. It is no wonder that when someone like this makes a profession, most Christians are skeptical. It's understandable. On our way home last night from O'Hare Airport, uh, we were talking about those uh, whom we thought had a credible profession of faith, and yet they walked away from what they said they believed. We have quite the history with uh, Greg Fulner. We've known him since he was... 13 years old, so nearly 20 years now, and so we know a lot of similar people, and we were sort of uh, rejoicing in those who are continuing to walk with the Lord, but grieved over those who uh, clearly did not truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my friends says, while we rejoice in conversion, we must also see discipleship as a time-will-tell type of reality. But nonetheless, when someone makes a profession of faith in the spotlight, that is, they're well-known and they make some sort of a public profession of faith, skepticism often follows. I'm grateful that this musician is being discipled by a friend of mine who is a solid pastor, as solid as they come, and I'm hopeful that this is a genuine conversion. But when we see someone who who has been in the spotlight, whose sins are also in the spotlight, we tend to think... Maybe God can't save them, or certainly if God saves them, He's not going to use someone like them. I remember when another famous musician died in 1994 by taking his own life, that someone I knew came in and picked up a newspaper reading the headline about this musician having taken his life. He dropped the paper and said, huh, good. I said, what? He said, oh, one less person Satan can use. My immature response was, you're one less person Satan can use. My view on God's sovereignty were not well formed at that point, but my intention was to point out to both me and him that we are not above sinning grievously, and God is not above using sinful people for his purposes. And in his grace, he uses both the just and the unjust person, the sins of all humanity for his purposes and his glory. He says to Pharaoh, um, you are my tool for my purposes. Even though you think you're fighting against me, I will use you. Such are the scandalous events surrounding the women who are, in, who are in Jesus' family tree as we enter into this Advent season and look at this. Clearly, uh, these women are not acting in a vacuum. 
men and even nations are involved in all of what's going on. Even as we read uh, these first few names in this lineage, in this genealogy, your mind, if you're familiar with the Bible, is probably bursting with all the events that occur in Israel leading up to these different um, events and to the greatest event, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and His reason for coming. So these things don't happen in a vacuum. But the fact that these women show up where they do in our main text over the next few weeks here in Matthew 1 highlights how God is not like us and would not choose what or who we would to fulfill His plan of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read in 1 Corinthians this morning, He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Look, I mean, He chose me, right? God is fulfilling His plan and His ways. And we look at this in wonder and amazement as we consider the Incarnation because it took sinful humanity to bring about the Incarnation in order to deal with sins. Have you thought about that? That's what we're looking at over the next few weeks as we consider the advent of Christ And even as we consider His first coming, our minds are always and ought to be drawn to His second coming as well. He is coming again. Therefore, as we look at His first coming, we have in view the reason for His first coming and the consummation of His second coming. Here's the main point this morning. You see this written on the back of your worship folder Listen, folks, God is gracious to use any of us because we are fallen. But if we are, in fact, in Christ, we have been redeemed. And it is by God's gracious gracious choice that He uses us as earthen vessels to proclaim the truths that we look at together every time we open the Word of God. God is gracious to use any of us because we are fallen. But if we are in Christ, we have been redeemed, and we have been redeemed for a purpose. So over the next few weeks, we'll be studying five women in the family tree of Jesus and the scandal that surrounds each of them. And there really is, uh, as we look at these names that are given in this first chapter of Matthew, um, much reason for us to put a question mark and say, why is this woman's name given here? And I think we will see as we look at why Matthew, as an author of a gospel, a good news about Jesus, uh, typically looked at as writing to Jews would, would insert these names to bring a bit of, if I could say the term, shock and awe to those who would read this. Because they know very well the events surrounding these lives. Now, the first woman we see this morning is the deceiver, Tamar. The deceiver, Tamar. And please understand, once again, as I'm bringing up these women's names, it's not that they do these things in a vacuum, as I mentioned earlier. And we're not picking on these women. We're simply highlighting the fact that Matthew brings their names up for a purpose. And it is to continue to show us that God is gracious. So we see her name come up here. Matthew chapter 1, looking at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. It's interesting to us as we consider this. We think about that famous line, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And maybe our mind is then drawn to the 
sort of main character of the following chapters after Jacob into the life of the son of his named Joseph. And we think, why now does the attention turn uh, to Judah? That's what it says. And the father of Judah and his brothers. Joseph doesn't even get a mention. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And in that moment, a first century Jew reading that would say, Whoa. Tamar. Why? Take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis and chapter 38. Uh, We are going to be, this morning, looking at a few different passages together as we construct this genealogy that Matthew gives us. It's not necessarily, by the way, odd that women might be mentioned in um, genealogies. Favorable women, however, are usually the ones who are mentioned. Women like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Again, we, we recognize, though, that these women who pop up in this first chapter are so interesting and there's much scandal surrounding them. Uh, looking at Genesis chapter 38, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 32 together here in just a moment. This is definitely one of those places in the scriptures where you're reading along and you're in the midst of one stream of an event and then out of nowhere here pops this telling of Judah and Tamar. You're reading first about Joseph's brothers betraying him and then boom, this twisted tale about Judah and Tamar. What does this have to do with anything? As this uh, comes into view, as we're again kind of struck with, I thought we were talking about Joseph, all of a sudden this thing about Judah and Tamar comes up. Matthew reveals the answer to us. Why is this in here? And then I say to all of us, we better be glad that this is in here. Let's look at this Genesis passage together. As I said, this is right after the scene where Joseph is given over to the Egyptian slave traders. The first part of chapter 38 tells of how Judah marries a Canaanite woman, which she is not supposed to do, and she bears him children. After some rather unfortunate events, the Lord takes the life of all of Judah's sons but one. Judah then commands his daughter-in-law, Tamar, to remain a widow, though he should have given her to his youngest son, Shelah, according to Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. But Tamar comes up with her own plans, and that's where we pick up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was confronted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adamite, Adulamite, sorry. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up. And she had not been given him in marriage. Pause for a moment. That's what I was mentioning. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. That's what should have happened. Uh, the youngest brother of her dead husband should have become her husband. But this didn't happen. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. 
for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And our first thought is, well, hang on a second, dude. If you think she's a prostitute, what are you doing? This is sinful regardless, but he doesn't even know it's his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me, that you may lie with me, that you may have sexual relations with me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Isn't it funny? I'm I'm sorry, this is just a little bit of a side note here that when a patriarch is trying to have children, they can't have children. And then when they're hoping to get away with sexual trysts, it's like they conceive right away. God has um, certainly a sense of irony in these things. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been there, been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. little um, hypocrisy here, do we see? When she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread of the hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And after his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. What happened here? My goodness, Jason, I thought we were talking about Christmas, man. (laughs) Judah and Tamar's immorality led to shameful things. If Judah, on the one hand, had obeyed the law, this would not have happened. If Judah had obeyed the law in regard to his daughter-in-law and what he was supposed to do with her, this would not have happened. If Judah had obeyed the law and not gone into a prostitute or what he thought was a prostitute, this would not have happened. If Tamar had obeyed the law, this would not have happened. Her actions are a reaction to Judah's um, improper dealings with her. She was not trusting the Lord to provide for her. Judah had not provided for her, but she thought, I'll do things my own way. Could God have used some other means to have the Messiah come into the world? Absolutely. But He didn't. 
He used these means. We must remember that the way that we choose to do things is not how God would choose to do them. God was not up in heaven wringing His hands thinking, well, I guess I need to use this sin. I have no other option. That is not the sovereign God of the Bible. No, God for His own purposes and for reasons that will glorify Him and Himself alone allowed it and used it. Now we must be careful. This is historic. At the time that this is occurring, neither Judah nor Tamar who, uh, you know, uh, Judah's obviously unaware of what's going on here. They aren't thinking, uh, well, hey, let's sin in order to see God's purposes accomplished. No, no, no. That's not how we're to think about this. Sin brings destruction. Always brings destruction. Sin does not only affect us, it affects everyone around us. Everyone we're connected to. Our family, our church family. The Christian world around us, the church, the universal church. No, we don't sin haphazardly so that God will accomplish what he wills and so that grace may abound. Once again, we think of Romans 6, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. The truth is, dear ones, that grace has abounded. And that's why we stand in awe of things like this, of events like this. Sin always brings destruction. But God will never not use the sinfulness of man for His own purposes. As gross and disgusting as our sin is, we cannot thwart the plan of God. It doesn't excuse the sin. It doesn't mean there will be no consequences for the sin. Maybe temporal consequences for believers and eternal consequences for those who are unregenerate and remain in that state. But what we have the beauty of here in Matthew chapter 1, looking back at Genesis chapter 38, is to see God accomplishing His purposes even in the midst of sinful humanity that brings about the Savior of the world. You see, the reality is we can't overlook any sin in regard to the lineage of Jesus. But it's just interesting that Matthew says, look here, let's put on display the grace and mercy of God in the midst of this messed up family tree that brings the Messiah. If you are in Christ, what this should make you thankful for is not, oh, at least I'm not like Judah and Tamar. What the gospel teaches us is that we are exactly like Judah and Tamar. At least in that moment, Judah allowed his lust to be an idol. He worshipped his desire for sexuality more than worshipping his desire for God. Tamar allowed her desire to be an idol. I have been wrong, therefore I'm going to get what I desire out of this and I'll get it from the man who should have given it to me rather than trusting God. We all have these idols of the heart. And if we're in Christ, we sometimes choose those over God. And if we're in Christ, our hearts are grieved in those moments. But we don't lose heart because 
even when we do what we do, we cannot thwart the plan of God. And we do not lose heart because we have been forgiven much and God continues to forgive us. Dear ones, can I remind you of something? Jesus is called the Lion of who? Judah. Isn't it interesting that as we leave the book of Genesis and head into the book of Exodus, as Jacob is blessing his sons, it is said of Judah that he is like the lion's cub and that the scepter will remain in his hand until Shiloh, until peace comes. That is a messianic prophecy that comes to fruition through the horrible means of sinfulness, but through God's decree that thus His Son should come into the world. I mean, if we even think about Judah's other offspring, couldn't it have been through another line? Not this one, Lord. You know, how, how dare we <laughs> when we see how much we've been forgiven and how God would choose to use us. God uses broken people and broken events. This is true all the time because sin has broken the world. And yet, even as God has written eternity on our hearts, we long for the reconciliation that is to come, the consummation that is to come at the second coming. We know reconciliation has come in the first coming. The Lord Jesus Christ born into this world, born into a sinful world, born under the law, as Paul says in Galatians 4, at just the right time, God with us, in order to redeem broken, sinful people. And now we long, don't we? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is so broken. We're sharing this good news with people all around us who are broken and who are sinful and who are in the depths of Judah and Tamar-like sins because we ourselves have been there. But Lord, come and heal us completely. We are longing for glorification, are we not? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. People reading Matthew for the first time need to be reminded of this and we need to be reminded of this. Secondly, In Matthew chapter 1, if you turn back there, we see the Gentile prostitute, Rahab. We see one first, Tamar, who dressed and literally did prostitute herself out for her own purposes. And now we see one who's not even Jewish, the Gentile prostitute, Rahab. Look at verses... 4 and 5, and Ram, who came about as a result of uh, Perez, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. <clears throat> by Rahab. Turn, if you will, to Joshua chapter 2. Excuse me. 
Joshua chapter 2. We're going to look here at the events surrounding the life of Rahab. These details seem a little more central to the events occurring in the time of the writing, unlike the events of Judah and Tamar that seem to spring up strangely. This is the as um, Israel is heading toward the promised land and all the things surrounding that. So let's look at these verses together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I do not know where they are from. Where the, I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord Yahweh your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord Yahweh that I, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, when you shall be, um, then you shall be guiltless with respect to our oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the per, uh, pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. 
And also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. That's a long section. It is the word of God, though, and we need to know it. What are some things we notice? Maybe first of all is that she lied. <laughs> I don't want to focus on this too long. But even in this, God's will was that they go undiscovered. Um, again, we, we see sinfulness happening all around us, and yet God is still subverting that sin and using it for his own purposes and for his glory. We also see she believed in Yahweh. Did you see that? Whenever you see the word Lord written in all capitals in your Bible, um, that is a signification of the word Yahweh. She uses the name of Israel's God. She doesn't just say, you know, we heard about your God and how great he is. No, we have heard about Yahweh. And we, are, we were terrified. Our hearts melted within us. These things really happened and we were fearful. And I know, she says, that your God, Yahweh, has given this land into your hands. And ultimately what happens is that she is saved from a pagan lifestyle into the lifestyle of of Israel. She was not an Israelite, but what is called a proselyte. She was one who was brought in from the outside and began to live as one who was an Israelite. We must see that human action is working in perfect cooperation with the plan of God. God's sovereignty in these matters should serve as an encouragement for us to trust God. Not, hey, I can just get away with anything I want to get away with and God's going to use it, of course. No. But even when we do sin, we cannot confuse the plan of God. One of the key features of Rahab in this event is that she is listed in what we like to call the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. This is for obvious reasons. The reality is, from a human perspective, Rahab would not have been included in the line of Messiah. We would not have picked a Gentile prostitute, but she was redeemed And God used her. On the one hand, we should rejoice that God would choose any of us. On the other hand, it's comforting to know that you can be forgiven of any sin. And on yet another, we should think, we should not think that we are anything because we have not sinned in these ways. Listen, folks, we're all jars of clay. So Paul says, we're all earthen vessels that God would choose to use any of us is wonderful, is magnificent, is marvelous. That as we look at these women over the next few weeks, that He would use these events and these women. And again, they're not doing this in a vacuum. This is the sins of all kinds of people around that would bring Messiah into the world. God does this. The sin that necessitates the need for Messiah is also the means by which God brings Messiah into the world and even the hand by which Messiah is crucified. Listen to the words of Acts 2, 22-24. This is Peter preaching to the men of Israel on the Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What do we see here? We see the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that led to Jesus dying on the cross, but it was done through the means of sinful men putting him there. But death could not hold him, and he was raised on the third day. Now maybe you're sitting here this morning and you think, Jason, you you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins that I have committed. You don't know the awful ways in which I have not obeyed the things that I see in the Bible that you're talking about this morning. You know, one sexual tryst with a prostitute That just pales in comparison to the sins that I have sinned. God could never forgive me. Maybe this is what you're thinking. This is not what the good news of Jesus Christ says at all. Yes, the bad news indeed is that all have sinned. And all are deserving of death and eternal punishment from God and the eternal wrath of God. But God draws the vilest offenders to Himself. Not only to rescue them, He calls them to useful service for their good and for His glory. Do you see how in these first few verses of Matthew, Jewish people would have looked at this and said, wait a minute, I know who Tamar is. I know what she did. That's in our Pentateuch. That's in our Torah. I know what Rahab did and who she was and what her testimony was before she came to know Yahweh God. This is how God brings His Son into the world. Listen, God draws the vilest offenders to Himself, not only rescues them, He calls them to useful service for their good and His Glory, there is no sinner who is outside the reach of the good news. So today, if you're sitting there, you say, you just don't know what I've done. You don't know how badly I have sinned. You're right, I don't know, but God knows. And He put His Son on a tree to die for sins such as those. Turn from your sin and trust in the finished work of Christ today. I love the focus of our songs this morning. It wasn't just about the incarnation, which is super important, but it, they led us to the cross. He was nailed to a tree. He bore the wrath of God that sinners deserved on that tree. By the sinful hands of men was He hung on that tree, but by my sins was He also hung on that tree. To bear the wrath that I deserved. But death could not hold him. Three days later, he rose again. My call to you today is to repent, to turn from your sins and believe. If you're in Christ, don't believe because you have a sinful past. You cannot be used by God. Do not believe that because of things that you did pre-conversion, or even after you came to faith in Christ, that God cannot use you. 
if you think that, hey, you know what, Jason, you're a pastor, you're up there preaching all the time, and you must just have it all together. No. I <laughs> can't remember who said this. Somebody can tell me later. We're all just beggars showing other beggars where the bread is found. We're not better than anyone else. Christ is better. Christ and His righteousness is the foundation upon which we stand. If you're struggling with sin, yes, you need to get accountability. You need to live righteously in Christ because it is His righteousness that is given to you in order that you might live righteously. And and maybe you need to come and find accountability for that. We're here for you. We want to help you with that. But maybe on the other side of that is just, I can't be used of God. Dear ones, none of us can be used of God except that God desires to use us even though we're clay pots. It is his, by His grace, by His righteousness, by His justification, by that which, which, which has been imputed to us by His virtue in being the perfect sacrifice, living a perfect life in order that we might be reconciled to Him and live for Him and do the good works that He has put before us, that He has predetermined before the foundations of the world. It is nothing of us anyway, so don't feel that way. If you need help with that, please come and see us. We would love to talk with you about that. We'd love to walk with you through that. And if you're in Christ and a part of this local body, we need to be willing to be the ones who do walk with those who are struggling with their past or present and pointing them to the finished work of Christ and the life that God calls us to in that gospel truth. Many of those relationships, many of those conversations are completely unknown to us. They're happening in very informal ways, and I'm so grateful for that. When I get just an inkling, a little you know, taste of that, like, oh man, thank you, God. That this person is walking with this person and they're showing them, hey, we're all just beggars. We're all just clay pots. But God finds us useful. Not for our glory, not for our esteem, but for His glory and for His esteem. Let us worship Him. Yes, as the one who came into the world, put on humanity but came to redeem us. Came to redeem Tamar. Came to redeem Rahab. Came to even redeem the last woman we will talk about in our series, his own earthly mother, Mary. Let us be used by him in spite of who we are, but because of everything that He is and has done for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do pray this morning that You would take away anything that I have said that has been a distraction. Only let us feast on the truth of the Gospel this morning. That, Lord, though this world is broken, though we are broken, though this world is filled with sin and we are sinners, It is Christ and His perfect life, His death, His resurrection in which we hope. And then, Lord, as we go out and live our lives as useful instruments of mercy, it is not about us, it is about Your glory, Lord. Remind us of that today. And for those who do not know You, I pray that today would be the day 
that they would come to faith in you. And if there are those that are struggling, that they would come and, uh, Lord, find out um, what it means to, or be reminded of what it means to be forgiven and that they are useful for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.